Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at PCRC in Pease, Minnesota. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to be part of this interview, but he will be back next time. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we realize that whenever Reformation happens, things get messy. And things are starting to get messy now in the CRC. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's happening in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday. And don't forget, we've created a new Patreon account. So if you like what we're doing and want to support us financially, head on over to patreon.com backslash the Messy Reformation. Or you can find that information on the sidebar of our website at themessyreformation.com. That money will go toward audio equipment, website hosting, podcast hosting, and a future Messy Reformation conference. So stay tuned. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part two of our conversation with Ed Gerber. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to mention that in our church, we kind of have um, this covenantal identity. Everybody is supposed to be. But in practice, there is something beautiful about the Catholic tradition. And I wonder if part of the creative thinking that can happen on our side, uh, on our side over here in the Christian Reformed Church is to say, yeah, the whole body is indeed responsible. And they make a prom- promise to use their gifts to raise this child to know the Lord. Nonetheless, what if we had some form or another of godparenting? So I just in when I was at Webster, I was asked by a couple if I would be their son's godparent. It was the first time I was a Christian reform boy raised in CRC church. I didn't know what that was. I said, well, what is that? Well, that means you're going to take special concern for his. I said, well, that's what we do as a whole body. And they said, yeah, but, you know, we just think there's some value into having one. And I said, "Okay, fine, I'll do this. But you need to know I'm going to take this role seriously. And so we're going to have a conversation every single year. Well, it's been wonderful because I can't do that to the level I'm now doing it with this individual um, to the whole body. It's just impossible. But I have this really cool kind of pen pal relationship. And we videoed last time. We just did a Zoom call together and asked him, how's it going? You know, how's your faith life? How's your it's it's more than that, you know, how are you doing, how's school, blah, blah. But I have, he knows I'm his godfather, and therefore I have the special privilege of asking these special questions. Um, how is it going in your relationship with God? What are you struggling with lately? How's your Bible reading coming? What do you find confusing? What do you find life-giving? So that's been just really wonderful. And I wonder if uh, we, we couldn't think of some kind of hybrid model where we do the both. The whole body makes a promise and you designate particular people who are going to take a special interest as an emblem of the body to watch over this child and to, to be their godparent. Yeah, because we all know there's also the principle, right? If, if everyone's responsible for it, nobody's responsible for it, right? Well, through and everybody assumes somebody else is taking care of it. And so there is a beauty in, in theory, right? Because we also know that, um, you know, even the, the idea of godparents isn't not everyone takes that role seriously, as you're saying that you do, right? A lot of people just, um, oh, I got to buy an extra gift for them once a year or whatever, you know, right. but, right. Um, but there's a beauty in actually living it out. 
And, Here, uh, here's and a parallel. Here's a parallel for you, one that I've kind of pushed. So we have this tradition in weddings of having a maid of honor and a best man. Or a, what do you call it? A, what's the, what, is it a maid of honor? Yeah, the maid of honor, right? And then yeah, the bridesmaids, yeah, yep, right? Yep. So um, with, the, with the best man, I thought, what is the function historically of a best man? Um, my understanding is that a best man was to protect the couple against any other um, onlookers or potential suitors who would like to disrupt the marriage ceremony. He would defend the marriage. Now, what if we started to teach when we do premarital counseling and when we do our uh, wedding services, what if we just took a moment to talk to the maid of honor and the best man and say, look, you guys have been chosen to do this for a reason. Historically, this is what this position was. So um, I was a best man for my brother's wedding and I have always, so I'll call them on their anniversary. And the question is, are you loving and serving your wife? Are you laying down your life so that she can live? Are you serving her? So I talk to my brother. I'm his best man. And that means I have to kick him in the pants in order to make sure that he is living out the vows that he promised, right? Amen. So against anything that would come between the two. I think there's a parallel here in terms of just having that face-to-face contact with somebody who represents the body of Christ and the covenant vows that they made in their baptism. Amen. Yeah, I think that both are beautiful ideas. Collections of mature people who are going to be willing to do it and (laughs) um, going to be good at it too, which sometimes can be a challenge. Yeah, amen. Well, which I think starts with uh, just starting to do discipleship well in our churches, I think, right? I think that's that's been one of the things I've been really wrestling with lately, just thinking back through, Mm. um, you know, where we're at in our churches right now, I think, um, as I talk to a lot of people, right, we feel like our churches are fairly biblically illiterate and, and we, we want to disciple people. We want to teach them. We want to raise them up. And yet it's hard to do that because people are busy, right? People don't want to go to Bible studies and stuff. And so how do you get into that and really start discipling people? And, and I've wrestled with it thinking back through like when the Reformation happened, when Calvin and Luther were doing that, they were speaking to, I mean, people weren't, you know, they were busy in a different way. They were just busy, just trying to live. Yeah. Um, and yet they were still um, there and they were discipling a biblically illiterate people. So like, how do we start doing that in, in our current culture? I don't know. I mean, this raises the ecclesiological question. I've been thinking about that on our side of the border. I'm not sure how abreast you are of the sorts of things that are going on in your little brother to the North, but um, things are getting rather interesting here. And I'm yeah, not yeah. sure what the church is going to look like in uh, 15 to 20 years or even sooner. I was having a conversation with Bruce Waltke a little while ago, and he was wondering, given the sorts of decisions that our government is making on this side of the border, uh, whether or not the church is going to be forced underground in uh, in due time. And he's not joking about that. And I think that there are um, probably some good reasons that we might have to go underground. Right. So if you've um, I don't know if you're aware of Bill C4 that was just passed here in yeah, Canada. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is really deeply, profoundly con- concerning because the government is essentially dictating what Christians can believe and how we can behave in accord with those beliefs and how we can't when it comes to questions of human sexuality. And so if it's perceived that we're trying 
Now notice that if it's perceived that we're trying to talk somebody out of their um, same sex orientation, even if they want it, even if somebody would come to me as a pastor and say, you know, I, I have these unwanted desires. Can you help me? That could be considered other than new definitions, conversion therapy. And I could face up to five years in prison for doing such a thing. It's not clear that a parent couldn't be found guilty of the same thing if his boy comes to him wearing girls' clothes one morning and he says, you're a boy, get get those clothes off, and then get to school. So we are coming into a very, very tenuous time in Canada in terms of the expression of our religious faith and our ability to speak freely. So I, I don't know what it's going to look like. Will the church need to be driven underground? What does an underground church look like? What will preaching look like in that context? Will it be more conversational? Therefore, in some ways, more conducive for the discipleship enterprise, where it's going to be a back and forth, you know, maybe groups of 12 is probably the most that you really want in terms of a home church. I don't know, maybe maybe 30, but economic stability is going to look different. We're probably going to use our lose our religious exemptions up here. That's just my my looking into the future yeah. on what's happening. Um yeah, we see we're we're seeing up here how controlling the government can be, and uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know where it's all going, but discipleship yeah, is well, very different in years to come. That's true. Yeah, and I've been uh, based on a lot of what you've been saying, and then I just read well, probably a year ago now, Carl Truman's book. Um, oh shoot, now I just lost the name of it. Um, oh, uh, is it his more recent one? Yeah, about the the modern. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was that? Yeah, I know exactly. I don't remember the title either at the moment. I, I just lost know. it, anyways. But either way, at the very end of the book, he says, "All right, what should we be thought thinking about as far as church history? What portion of history should we be reading?" Um, and he actually said, "Maybe not the Reformation, uh, but more second century Christianity when they were the minority." And uh, that was that was interesting. So I've been grabbing a. There's not a lot of books on second century Christianity, <laughs> um, but there's a few. And so I've been, I bought a couple of them and I've been reading through and yeah, just thinking through how they organized the church back then when they were the minority and trying to figure out how to still do ministry and discipleship. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause yeah, it's going to be interesting in, in years to come. It will be. Yeah. We'll all move to Florida. Yeah. <laughs> So as you kind of, we've talked a lot about some of the issues going on in kind of broad cultural uh, Christianity, but I want to dive a little closer into just the Christian Reformed Church and ask, what are some of the concerning things you see happening in the Christian Reformed Church right now? The concerning things, well, I think the big one is obviously uh, the division over human sexuality. And um, my belief that even even if we accept the report, affirm the work that was done with the human sexuality report, this synod, provided synod even happens for the third year in a row, even if that happens, and even if we make it a status confessionis, that it's a state of confession, and that in order to sign the form of subscription or covenant for office bearers, you must agree to um, the outlines of this document and so on, I think we're still going to be facing opposition within our own ranks, where people are going to want to uh, push a different position, and um, the denomination is going to be embroiled 
in conflict for years and years and years to come. So one of the things that keeps me up night is is not so much at this point I've come to a, a place of almost it's difficult to say this, but I just feel like I detached. Like I don't care what happens anymore. I just want to make a decision as a denomination so that we can get on with it. And you know what I'm saying? Of course I care, but yeah. it's a point where I think we just have to make a decision as a body, stop the disdain, stop the contempt, um, and have an amicable separation at this point, because I, I can't see how it works, even if we do adopt the study, unless there's an agreement that those who want to teach otherwise go elsewhere or refuse to do it. And will that happen? I don't know. Um, and if it does happen, and we do have professors in the church or pastors in the church who are teaching a non-traditional um, sexual ethic and trying to use scripture to do it, right, which I, I think involves us in hermeneutical gymnastics, I just cannot see these working. Um, if they continue to do that, will there be a will to discipline, to exercise the third mark of the church? I don't think so. There's no evidence at all uh, to me that we are willing to exercise discipline for doctrinal and theological matters. Maybe when it comes to some life issues, but not when it comes to doctrine and theology. So where does that leave us as a denomination? There's a huge question mark there for me. Um, Andrew Bianc and some others like him, Andrew's a pastor here at New SCRC, um, and, and a, a churchman through and through, exceptional. He says, you know, maybe one of the things that we need to look at is an RCA and CRC kind of uh, rapprochement, where those who want to go left as bodies of Christ go into the RCA because they've effectively gone that way anyways. And those who are yet in the RCA and want to remain conservative come over to the CRC. And so we're not doing the whole big dividing thing. But that that is chiefly what concerns me in terms of an issue or topic du jour. Now, the question is... What is it revealing in the underbelly? <laughs> How did we get into this place? Does this come down to a postmodern reading of Scripture? Has our subjective modalities taken over an objective reading of Scripture? Um, is it that we have become um, worldly? I, you know, what, what is going on, on on both sides of it? So, and that would be one of the deeper questions. Um, to look at is well what's going on underneath how did we get to this and that's probably where you got to read carl truman actually and go and look at you know philip briefs the therapeutic self and the the triumph of the therapeutic and some other stuff like that yeah, yeah because you're you're right uh, we've seen for the last 20 years i would say um just a complete refusal to exercise any form of discipline on doctrinal matters mm -hmm. and uh and when it has come to synod, there's always some kind of church order, political maneuvering to just get it dropped and, and pushed off to the side. But, but if somebody does something in life, I mean, I've just experienced this in local churches where if you've brought up, um, before I was a pastor, I would bring up an issue to the council and say, hey, our pastor's teaching this, and I don't think this is good or right. They would just kind of, oh, that's not a big deal. And, uh, but then eventually... Um, he got in trouble and actually ended up, they did form due discipline on him. And uh, um, he was eventually deposed because of issues of life. Uh, and so they were willing to take these disciplinary actions regarding life issues, but regarding the doctrinal issues. Um, and this has been around for quite a while, actually. I just read an article 
uh, this week, me and a couple of guys were talking and, and I don't even remember how it surfaced, but it was an article written for reformed worship, like in 2003. So like 18 years ago. Um, and a church in that article was talking about how they had a lot of controversy in their church over the issue of homosexuality. And then their wording was, and over traditional views regarding the divinity of Christ. <laughs> and they said, and the church said, we just decided we were going to agree to disagree on these things and just follow Christ together in unity. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> you know, I mean, those are, those are central teachings to, to Christianity. And how can you, you know, there's a lot of issues with that. But, but this has been going on in the Christian Reformed Church for a really long time. And, right. and I've been trying to diagnose it. Um, you know, part of me thinks uh, that throughout the history of the Christian Reformed Church, we've had a tendency to get embroiled in a big conflict and then come to a conclusion and then kind of make a, an unofficial truce and say, we're just not going to fight about anything anymore. And so coming out of all of the battle around women's ordination that happened in the 80s and 90s, I think the denomination was just like, we're not going to fight over anything anymore. We're just going to be friends. And then that has just kind of broiled up into what we're, we're seeing now. But um, I've said this multiple times, though, the future of our denomination really will depend on whether we're going to enact discipline. Um, because I think, I think, and maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I think the human sexuality report will pass. Yeah. Um, I think by a narrower margin, it will receive confessional status. I think we'll, I think both of those will happen. Um, yep. But I'm not positive that we will start um, enacting discipline after that because we have no track record in it. And so I've been trying to encourage everybody, like if we really want to see the CRC continue, we have to do it. And that's just the top tier. And then each and every congregation is going to have to have it out in terms of what are they going to do? And it's going to be a mess, is my prediction. But I want to go back a little bit there. I, I think part of the thing that we're facing in the Christian Reformed Church, but not only the Christian Reformed Church, this is all mainline denominations, is that we are enshrining cultural values above and beyond scriptural values. So take the concept of inclusivity. Inclusivity is a wonderful idea. There is a pattern of inclusivity in Testament. And people love to go to the verse, no more Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, right? Which is about status markers for inclusion. But now we have, we, we want inclusion without boundaries. We want inclusion without conditions. One of the terms that we have used historically is the church must be hospitable. That is true. But then we added an adjective. We said the church has to be radically hospitable. Well, radical hospitality taken to its end point, disables the church from being able to be the church. Because then, if you're going to be radically hospitable, as happened in my church since I've been there, people are going to begin to say to you, you cannot say, if you believe in Jesus, you're welcome to come to this table. Because that's exclusive language. And so my typical preamble, and I try to keep it the same every time, actually, I try to eschew novelty when doing some of these things so that the phrases stick in your brain um, in a high liturgical fashion. I say, if you know Jesus and you want to know him more, if you've repented of your sin and you're trying to embody a life of forgiveness to other people, 
If you trust in Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior, and you desire to live a life of obedience to him, not in your own power, but in the power that the Spirit will give you, then you are invited to come with table with gladness to the table of the Lord. For the gifts of God are for the people of God, and he's made everything ready. Amen. I got in trouble from one of my parishioners who is very upset with me because I am putting conditions on the table. And we ought not do that in the church. You see, this is where radical hospitality takes us is um, you get rid of the sword that Jesus talked about. Yeah. I have come to bring a sword. Now, what kind of sword did Jesus come to bring? Well, I think he came to bring, at the end of the day, an ideological sword. And there are things that the Christian must be willing to die for. And it is to die for the truth at the end of the day. Um, so uh, we're, I think we're just in a, we're in a postmodern context where, well, you know, it's almost an offensive thing to claim that you have the truth. And I mean, in the Reformed mm-hmm. tradition, we can kind of dodge that by saying, I don't claim I have the truth. I claim that the truth has me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I had a conversation with uh, somebody recently and they were, um, they weren't necessarily, they were more like passive aggressively rebuking me, um, saying like, well, I don't think we all need to be so prideful and all, we all need to think that we're right. You know, we, we just need to, you know, you, you don't know if you're right and I don't know if I'm right. So, and I, well, I, mean, I kind of <laughs> laughed and I said, we all think we're right. Otherwise we wouldn't believe it. You know, like, like it's okay for me to say I'm right because I think I'm right. You prove, teach me that I'm wrong. Um, and you think you're right that none of us should think we're right. You know, as, yeah. as weird of a yeah. time. And they kind of looked at me exactly. weird. And I said, you think you're right. You know, uh-huh. I'm not th- saying you're prideful in that. I'm just saying we all should think that we're right and be able to have a conversation about it. So we actually have a ground to stand on to have some kind of conversation. Have, have you read uh, G.K. Chesterton much? A little bit. So his his opening of Heretics is positively wonderful, uh, where he talks about the thing. And he was a prophet. eh? You go back and read Chesterton. My yeah, goodness, yeah. did he see what was coming around the curve? Incredible. Uh, He's called the Apostle of Common Sense, but he also had a very good uh, view on what was coming around the bend. Anyways, in Heretics, he talks about, you know, um, that in his day already it was becoming fashionable to not clamp down on the truth. But he says, in the past, a man would consider himself, you know, aggrandized if he was called a heretic because he believed he was a heretic who had the truth and was standing on the truth. He was a church, and around him all things swang. You know, it's this beautiful yeah. Chestertonian moment. But, yeah, it's kind of like, go back to Chesterton. He, he kind of blows the chaff away on these conversations. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Well, we're getting close to the end, and uh, I always ask everybody, um, what, what do you think we need to do? I mean, we've kind of touched on it, but I want to just touch on it explicitly. As, as a Christian Reformed church, if we want not just to survive, but actually see reformation happen in our denomination? What, what steps do you think we need to take? Huh. For reformation in our denomination, I think you need a um, collaboration, an alliance of pastors who are committed to teaching the faith handed down. Um, and entrusted to us to preach the gospel, the transformation of the heart, um, to um, inculcate a Christian world and life view, uh, a, a 
formed World and Life View that is canonic in its scope. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. I think that we need to be urging our people today not to live the moment that we are eternal creatures. We have parked ourselves here. We're far too comfortable. I say that for myself. I am. We've had it way too good for way too long, and we've become fat in our spirituality. It's just true. I feel this way too. We're not strong. We're weak. And I think the Lord is allowing us to be chastened as a body, and it's going to be a you chastening. It'll be a good chastening if we surrender ourselves to it. Um, times of difficulty are coming. I think we ought to embrace that as the as the loving discipline of our loving Lord. Um, but in in terms of reformation, it's the degree to which um, we will stay true to God's word and be willing to suffer for it. I think one of the conversations we need to be having is, uh, and one of the books we need to be preaching is Revelation. Uh, as a a pastoral document to people who are in suffering. The author of Hebrews says, you have not yet suffered to the point of shedding your blood. That describes us. In fact, we're just at the beginning of some pain. And uh, um, my prayer is that it it wakes the church up. And at this point, um, although I love the Christian Reformed Church, and I want to see her thrive and flourish, I do think that mere Christians need more and more to be getting together. Because uh, the liberal forms of Christianity, um, I believe, are giving up things that are central to the gospel, and that we are going to have to link arms with um, those Catholics, those Eastern Orthodox, those other Protestant denominations, um, in a mere Christianity kind of way to sustain one another, and it's probably going to need to be more and more geographically rooted. So... Amen. I think a lot of people, I don't know if you experienced this up in Canada as well, but um, I've experienced that just recently through all of the, the the COVID struggles, trying to figure out how to how to navigate through all of the politics and all of that. that um, I've actually found myself really grabbing hold of my fellow faithful pastors in the community who are e free or whatever, just grabbing hold of them and let's figure out how to live this together. And I almost, I know this may sound heretical, but I feel more brotherhood with some of them than some of the other CRC pastors in in our denomination who are just running off the rails. I'm thinking, hey, you're more of a brother. Let's figure out how to live this together. Yep. Yep. And I wouldn't feel guilty about that at all. This is just the reality that we are in. And wherever we can find Christian brothers and sisters to work with to advance the kingdom, we ought to be doing so. I think think we probably are moving more and more into kind of a well, we, we have been moving into a post-denominational. Look at the allegiance of the young people. It's not to denominations. It's not. Um, unfortunately, sometimes it's to what's the next biggest thing in town. That's also not going to sustain the church. I think we need to get smaller. We need to get more personal. And um, we need to get local. Because, you know, this, this drive-in church thing, how well is drive-in church really working? To what degree are we the ecclesia? What to, and I speak to myself, you know, like, I think one of the things, so Peter Lightheart said, I think brilliantly, that COVID's going to be an apocalypse in the sense of it's going to reveal things that have been heretofore hidden. I think COVID is revealing things. And one of the things it's revealing about the body of Christ is a lot of our participation has been superficial. Yeah. And um, a lot of people felt profoundly disconnected. Good preaching alone will not sustain a body of Christ. In the long hand, it has to be about the community of believers, the saints. It's kind of a New Testament vision of the church, where the church is the body. 
And yes, if you've got great preaching, good, wonderful for you. But don't um, don't make your church equivalent to to what happens at the pulpit. You know, although I, of course, as a preacher, I find it unbelievably important. Uh, the word preached is life giving and sustaining. It's a means of grace. So, but uh, yeah, yeah, amen. Yeah, and I've I've said this uh, before, but one of the one of the principles I think we can kind of rally around as the church is um, right, you know, right after Pentecost, right, right after Peter preached and 3000 people were brought to the Lord, it said, they devoted themselves to the word of God and fellowship, or well, to the apostles teaching is what it said, and fellowship. And I contextualize it, say, as a church, if we focus on those two things, the word of God and fellowship, um, everything else seems to kind of come in place after that. Like if we get, get those two things set in stone, then, then, actually evangelism does start to happen. Then, then service starts to happen. Everything starts to flow out of that. It's kind of the seek ye first, the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you, right? As a church, devote yourself to the word of God and, and fellowship and, and community, and, and all these other things will fall into place. One, one other thing comes to mind when you say what, is, what would lead to the reformation of the Christian Reformed Church, and this is something that's already happening. Thanks be to God, and thanks be to people like Chris Gansky. He's, he's quite a leader, but bringing pastors together for mutual encouragement, for edification, and for emboldening is unbelievably important today. We must embolden each other. If you go look back at what Paul is doing with Timothy, one of the things he is doing continually is trying to give young Timothy, who's shaking in his boots, courage. I know that I gain enormous courage from knowing that I'm not alone. And what I have seen over the past several years is that many of our brothers in Christ who are laboring um, as pastors feel completely alone. James Houston once said, the definition of insanity is to be alone in one's thoughts. Many of our fellow pastors are feeling quite insane because they think, am I the only one who's thinking this? My counsel's not with me. A couple of people in the body are with me. But if I try to talk about human sexuality as I'm reading it in scripture, um, I get clobbered and hammered. Am I the one who's crazy here? They will not hold on by themselves. It's the old picture of the log of fire that's taken away from the rest of the fireplace. It dies out. We need each other. And um, But I have seen, I, so on, on Chris Gansky's push as well, I started a company of pastors here at the beginning of COVID. That has been going quite well. It's been taken over now by the regional pastors in our church, which is, I think, where it belongs. They should be the ones leading this, right? And it's and, it, and they're wonderful guys. Mm-hmm. So, um, but those kind of things. I'm meeting with another group right now of concerned pastors, um, not to talk about COVID per se, but to talk about what COVID is doing. That's with a group of pastors. I'm doing it from all different denominations. We've got Presbyterians, yeah. we've got men, and there is a beauty there. Particularly for those of us who have who went to Calvin Seminary, we're with fellow CRC boys. That's great, but you know what? There is something about going to Regent College and you're rubbing shoulders with Anglicans and with Mennonites and with Charismatics and with Eastern Orthodox brothers. There's something utterly beautiful, and it says the body of Christ is large and it is worldwide. Um, so you know uh, that's that's the one thing. But we're we're seriously worried about what's going on and uh, how COVID is being leveraged, not to say anything else, but how it's being leveraged by the powers that be. And there's seriously concerning things going on in this world. 
Yeah. And one of the, one of the things that's been jumping out at me recently, just uh, my devotions have me going through the book of Acts right now. And the way it describes the, the work of Paul and Timothy isn't just going into the churches. They, they went to the churches and strengthened them. They went yes. through all the churches, strengthening them. And I thought <laughs> that is such an, a powerful imagery that they just didn't, just didn't check in on the churches. They went there and strengthened them. And that incurred that, in, that was part of like encouraging them in boldness and strength, but also diving them deeper into the word. And so uh, this idea, and I've been trying to work with that with our classes, like how can we go about through our churches and classes and, <laughs> and our denomination and strengthen the churches in, yes. in the word of the Lord? Yes, exactly. Well, one of the ways that's happening is when pastors are getting together because they go back bolder, more encouraged, more enthusiastic, knowing they're not alone. So this is this is great work that's being done. By the way, I was going to mention to you, if you haven't seen it, and for your listeners, um, Hans Borsma wrote a paper, uh, an essay in First Things a couple of months ago um, about uh, about conspiracy theories and conspiring. And he does a leap off Psalm 2. I forget the title of it, of course, but he's like, you know, there's a lot of talk about conspiracy theorists. And he says, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe that the nations of this world conspire. Because of Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of this world gather together, the rulers gather together. They conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. Of course, Mm -hmm. there's conspiring. And part of it is we've lost, we've had a frontal lobotomy in terms of a historical consciousness. Don't we know what happened in the last hundred years in this world? Are we that naive? You know, Um, things can go wrong and they can go wrong very, very quickly. And we better be awake. And one of the gifts that God gives to the church is discernment. So, and this is something that we got to do together to be sure. But um, anyhow. Yeah, praise God. Yeah, I've been I've told people that we need to be really be reading history because these things have happened over and over and over and over again. Well, is it yeah. still so, Ed, the zeitgeist? Yeah. What was that? Is it still the zeitgeist? Is it still the spirit of rage? I mean Yeah. Amen. Well, what uh we have pastors who listen to this, lay people that listen to this. So what's kind of your final words for them uh as we wrap up this podcast? My final word is to be encouraged, continue to fight the good fight. Jesus told us that it was not going to be easy. He told us that it was going to be struggle. He said, if the world hates me, it will hate you as well. And furthermore, we can, we can do this all with joy. Um, because this too will pass. No matter how difficult things are for you right now in the pulpit, no matter how much opposition you might be facing, or how much good is going on, (laughs) things shift and they shift very, very rapidly. So remember where our hope is and what our firm foundation is. It's not in the fleeting things of this world, but it is the eternal promises that we have received. And I do believe we need to go deep on these things. Otherwise, we're going to be in a perpetual state of depression and melancholy. So but we can have love, joy, peace, but we need to keep our focus, uh, our eyes on Jesus. So be encouraged. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week to find out who we're talking to. Until then, don't forget, this is Christ Church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season, and keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.